Hi, Katie. Hi. We're doing a normal episode this week. I feel like we haven't done one of these for ages. How do you do the whole talking thing again? I don't know, but I do know that I'm hiding under a blanket with lots of pillows around me for the sake of the sound. So, yeah, you should be very grateful, Katie, because I'm living in an apartment again with very high ceilings and no furniture. That's nice to know because I'm also coming to you from like a pile of cushions, but mine's in somewhere more boring than yours. I'm in London, but you're in Berlin. Yeah, I am. I'm in Berlin for the first time since I became German. (gasps) So we're going to tell people about that then. Yeah, I became German. I'm still British as well, but uh, there's this law, a basic law, whereby people who are descendants of Germans who were murdered by the Nazis during the Second World War or had their citizenship revoked, um, they can claim citizenship. So I did that. Wow. What did it feel like picking up your German passport? Yeah, I'm kind of okay with it. For practical reasons, it's really nice still having a European passport, despite being essentially British. Um, It does feel a little bit opportunistic. But it did feel quite uh, poignant that when I received the email saying I'd been accepted as a German citizen after two years of waiting for the application to go through, I was in the middle of rehearsing an opera about Theresienstadt, which is the camp in which my great-grandfather was killed. So, yeah, it's kind of heavy and also practically really nice. So it's complicated. Like a lot of things in Europe. Like a lot of things in Europe, yes. But I'm now that I am in Germany for almost a month, I'm embarrassed to show my passport to anyone just in case they then speak to me in German and I then have to like explain why I don't speak German. You could just learn German. I'm learning Dutch. That's very similar to German and it'd be very difficult for me to try and learn German and Dutch at the same time while singing a French opera. That's a lot for any head, especially one as small as yours. Hey. Sorry, that was mean. Anyway, how have you been? Uh, I've been good, thank you. I have started my new life as a freelance journalist, which means I'm spending more time working on this podcast and it's very exciting. I've already been working on some special episodes. If you haven't heard last week's, do go and listen back because it's a really beautiful piece from Catalonia made by our producer, Kat Slaslow. And we've got a couple more in the pipeline. So yeah, it's pretty great. Although, ask me again in a few months' time when I am broke and maybe this conversation will go differently. Um, So yeah, if anyone would like to support this podcast with large sums of money to stop me lying awake at night, hello at europeanspodcast.com. But anyway, Dominic, a lot of things have happened since our Christmas holiday. Spain has got a government. Northern Ireland has got a government. Belgium still doesn't have a government. Belgium still doesn't have a government, but uh, you never know. Things could change. Uh, But here in London, there has been one story that has been quite difficult to ignore over the past week. And that is the giant hoo-ha surrounding the royal family. Yes, it's been all over the news in the UK and I think across much of Europe. I was kind of surprised. I've been in Belgium, the Netherlands and Germany over the last few weeks. And I've seen in all the supermarkets, all the gossip magazines are covered with our British royal family on the front of it. Um, They've not had an easy time these last few months, but it does mean that finally Katie is allowing us to talk about uh, the royal family. She's been vetoing it. Uh, I've been pitching this idea to her to talk about European royal families for Uh... ever since this podcast has been around and she's been very reluctant, but now it seemed we couldn't avoid it. I've just been like mildly traumatized after having to actually cover the royals as a correspondent for a couple of years and finding it just intensely boring. (laughs) and depressing but yeah I finally decided to cave in to your constant demands it does feel like the right moment because I think this last week has just put into focus 
how weird an institution the monarchy is. Like how weird it is that we, we let people get born into these jobs where they have to essentially be in the public eye forever. And that is not just a British thing. I've just been reminded how common they still are as an institution. We have, I think, seven of them in the EU plus Norway. And we have the perfect guest to help us talk about this this week. It's Dr. Bob Morris from the Constitutional Law Department at University College London. And he's the co-editor of an upcoming book about European monarchies in modern democracy. So keep listening for his fascinating insight. But first, we've got Good Week, Bad Week. Who's had a good week, Dominic? It's been a good week for Hungarians after Viktor Orban announced that the government are going to provide free IVF for couples at recently nationalised fertility clinics. Great news, hey? Well, yes, probably it is great news for some couples. IVF is incredibly expensive. The average cost of an IVF cycle in Europe is between four and five thousand euros. And couples usually have to go through multiple cycles if they want a chance of getting pregnant. So this is a big offer from Orban's government and it is meant to begin as soon as February the 1st. So it's a big change. Wow. But... And this is a big but. The intentions behind this policy are, let's say, pretty gross. It is yet another way for Orban to express his disdain for immigrants. The Hungarian population has been falling for four decades. And he said, quote, If we want Hungarian children instead of immigrants, and if the Hungarian economy can generate the necessary funding, then the only solution is to spend as much of the funds as possible on supporting families and raising children. End quote. The birth rate in Hungary is currently 1.48 per woman, which is actually only a little below the average across the EU, But combined with a steady flow of emigration of working age Hungarians to other EU countries, the population is dipping. Orban brought out more of his xenophobic rhetoric back in September last year at a demographics conference when he referenced the far right theory of the great replacement. Have you heard about that? Yeah, that's a French thing. Oh, is it? Yeah, (laughs) we do invent some good things around here. Well done, France. Well, not it's not made up by the whole country. It was invented by a French writer. Ah, what's his name? Um, Renaud Camus was his name. Okay, well, it's basically the idea where non-Europeans are gradually replacing white Europeans. Orban said there are political forces in Europe who want a replacement of population for ideological or other reasons. Um, I mean, it's such a stupid theory, but the policy can still be good news for couples who need it. And I am happy for these people for whom they're going to be able to afford IVF that wouldn't be able to otherwise. But the reasoning behind the policy is pretty icky, to say the least. So, yeah, good week, hungry, kind of. Yeah, that's such a conflicting one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, yes, it is amazing. It's an amazing thing to offer to couples and something that's going to bring so much joy to so many people who wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. Yeah. Does it matter that it's for deeply sinister nationalistic reasons? Yes. Yes. 
Oh, okay. So that was a good week. Who's had a bad week? Uh, it was a bad week and a very awkward week for the Swiss tennis player, Roger Federer, who is used to taking on challenging opponents, but that was before he met Greta Thunberg. Uh, Federer has been in the headlines this week after Greta and hundreds of other people retweeted criticism of Federer for taking sponsorship from the investment bank Credit Suisse. And the hashtag Roger Wake Up Now started trending on Twitter. Why is this sponsorship deal a problem? Well, Credit Suisse, it turns out, has been a major funder of companies looking for fossil fuels. It's poured $57 billion into companies that are looking for new fossil fuel deposits since 2010. It's quite a staggering amount of money. Mm. And the tweet posted by Greta and others pointed this out. And it asked Roger Federer if he endorsed this kind of behaviour from the bank that sponsors him. So that put Rog in a really awkward position and he ended up having to put out a statement on the issue. As the father of four young children and a fervent supporter of universal education, I have a great deal of respect and admiration for the youth climate movement, and I'm grateful to young climate activists for pushing us all to examine our behaviours and act on innovative solutions. We owe it to them and ourselves to listen. I appreciate reminders of my responsibility as a private individual, as an athlete and as an entrepreneur, and I'm committed to using this privileged position to dialogue on important issues with my sponsors." So he didn't really address the problematic relationship that he has with Credit Suisse, which is a really lucrative deal, by the way. We don't know how much it's worth exactly today, but when they first sponsored him a decade ago, it was already thought to be worth a couple of million dollars every year. So when we're talking about a sponsorship deal for a tennis player like Federer, does that just mean that he wears a t-shirt with their logo on it and appears in their adverts? Yeah, that kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he could so easily just decide to let go of that deal. He's also got sponsorship deals with Rolex, with Mercedes and Uniqlo. And his estimated net worth is $450 million. So surely he doesn't need this. Oh, but money's so nice, Dominic. I mean, I do understand that when you hear of artists who have accepted money from not particularly kosher organizations i kind of am a bit more sympathetic towards it because it's so difficult to get any money as an artist but he is a multi multi millionaire let it go easy for you to say isn't it dominic you haven't got four children to feed (laughs) that's true i don't and if i did i would only be able to do it with 450 million dollars i love how this has just become about poor roger's bank account anyway Even though he sidestepped the issue, I think it's pretty great that one of the world's biggest sports stars has been called out by a 17-year-old girl on his environmental responsibilities and forced to respond in some way. And Credit Suisse have also started tweeting about the importance of fighting climate change and have said that they're trying to do better, apparently, pointing out that they have done a few things, like they no longer fund coal power plants, for example. It is becoming a bit of a trend among investment banks trying not to look evil to actually get behind green causes for a change. So You mean greenwash? Yeah, I guess it is. That is exactly what I mean. And put out loads of big adverts about what it is that they're doing to save the world, uh, ignoring all the awful things they have been doing and often continue to do. Dominic, a couple of weeks ago, it was you saying that I needed to stop being so cynical and get behind all the small amounts of progress that are being made in this world. And it seems That's like we've true. had a bit of a role reversal. There are good things, but I, I don't think we need to celebrate uh, Credit Suisse's <laughs> actions. I've become such a defender of Credit Suisse and Roger Federer in the last five minutes. Yeah. This was not oh, what I intended. Always. I think we should move on swiftly. Uh, before we do that, I just wanted to pay tribute to the group of Swiss environmental activists 
who appeared in court last week for a protest against Federer and Credit Suisse that they held back in 2018. They were in court because they turned up at a branch of Credit Suisse and started playing tennis inside the office and just like refused to stop, which I just think is a really good form of protest. And there needs to be more of that. That is a good one. Well done. Before we head into our interview, we are marking an anniversary this week. It is a year since we joined Patreon and uh, you guys started helping to keep the show running with monthly donations, big or small. We still don't agree how to say it. You say Patreon, I say Patreon. Patreon. I think you're probably right. But uh, yeah, we are so grateful to everyone who supported us in our first year on this website. And look, why don't you come and join the club? We've got a special offer for our first anniversary. Yes, indeed. Uh, We would like to celebrate our birthday, our Patreon birthday. You've made me paranoid about how to say it now. Uh, Our Patreon birthday by sending postcards from Dominic and me to all the people that sign up before the end of January to help us out. Or indeed, uh, any existing supporters who fancy upping their pledges a little bit. You can find all of the details on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. And there'll be a little link there in the show notes too. Special thanks this week to our new Patreons, Aaron Tam, Britta Schnell, Emily Rodriguez and Anna Yorok. Anna's not new. She just increased her pledge. Apparently we must be doing something right. Thanks, Anna. Um, As I said on Twitter, too much eye rolling from Dominic. All of this is helping us to become financially independent, just like Harry and Meghan. Isn't that a good segue to our interview? Very good. Maybe they need to start a Patreon. Maybe that's the way they're going to do it. What would they offer for their uh, one year anniversary deal? Hey, Katie, we're not going to be like all these gossipy uh, journalists who talk about the royals, okay? We're going to do this in a sober European way. Okay. And we're here not just to talk about Harry and Meghan. We wanted to have a look at how the different European monarchies compare. Yeah. So I think in our country, Great Britain, we tend to think of the royals as like a particularly British institution, something that makes us different. But actually, about a third of Europeans live under monarchies. We've got seven of them in the EU. Belgium, Denmark, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Spain and Sweden, as well as the UK. Uh, And there's Norway as well. So we seem to love having these unelected families to perform minor constitutional roles and and gossip about. I find the whole thing very weird, if I'm being honest. Yeah, and actually, I often feel quite sad when I read about coverage of the royal family in Britain because... Because of the hard time that they get in much of the media and I have to say I am quite sympathetic to Harry and Meghan's cause. Um, Meghan being a woman of colour who's come to the UK and gets some pretty nasty press which has hints of racism often and Harry whose mother was killed whilst being hounded by the press and must be traumatised by that. Mm -hmm. No wonder they want to step back a bit. It's a tricky relationship. I found as a correspondent covering them for a couple of years that we almost always got it wrong. You know, like either the coverage was really fawning and, and obsequious or it was really invasive and treated the royals a bit like zoo animals that we own as a nation and therefore get to, I don't know, like ogle every aspect of their lives. I guess like the whole relationship is a kind of really deeply ambivalent one. And I was kind of interested to see how that compares across the rest of Europe. Who better to ask about that than Dr. Bob Morris, a member of the Constitutional Unit at University College London and the co-author of a book that is coming out in July, The Role of the Monarchy in Modern Democracy, European Monarchies Compared. Let's give Bob a call. 
when I think about the monarchy, Bob, I, I tend to see the monarchy as something that belongs to a different era somehow. But I was really surprised to find out in an article about your work that about a third of us in Europe live in countries that have monarchies. In a nutshell, why do you think so many countries in Europe still have them? I was going to say it's the absence of discontinuity, but that's not true because four of them, of course, were occupied in the uh, last war and they survived. Some people look at this, political scientists being mostly Republicans, rather take a, a sort of line that, well, there were X number of monarchies in 1914, you know, which is a much larger percentage than there is now. There are now Y monarchies. They're obviously on their way out. Well, not necessarily. I mean, um, that's a very teleological way of looking at things. And they survive because uh, they remain re relevant in their societies. There are some advantages in having the headship of the state settled. It's not a subject of political contest, for example, as it would be in a republic. And uh, they offer the sense of continuity and relatability in the sense that every generation can relate to part of the family. But the main thing is, of course, that politically they must remain impartial. And few of them now have anything more than vestigial political powers. In our case, for example, the Queen no longer appoints the Prime Minister, which, of course, she did do until the um, 60s. And she no longer decides when to prorogue. Are there any monarchies in Europe where the monarch has a kind of a, any surprising leverage or power that you maybe wouldn't expect? I don't think so. You can say that there are monarchies which are still involved in the change of governments. For example, in Norway, that is so. But even that process is signed off by the outgoing and signed in, as it were, by the incoming prime minister. Um, the Dutch monarch, until relatively recently, did organize the process of selecting the prime minister. Uh, but that role has now been removed from the Dutch monarchy. The only monarchy that has ruled out entirely any constitutional or live political function is in Sweden from 1974. It was the price that the socialists extracted from their colleagues in the coalition government. So what do they do exactly in Swe the Swedish ones? Well, what that does, of course, is isolate the and make more apparent what the other roles are. Um, they aren't great, uh, but the uh, king... <laughs> King is capable of making important interventions. He made a very important public speech uh, following the tsunami some years ago when over 500 uh, Swedish citizens were killed in that event. And he is there as a symbol of nationality, as a way of reflecting the society back to itself and so on, which is one of the roles, of course, our monarchy occupies as well. And broadly speaking, the monarchies in Europe tend to be pretty popular, right? Like, I think I read that they have uh, approval rating somewhere between sort of 60% and 80%, which Correct. is better than quite a lot of politicians, frankly. I think most politicians would die for that. <laughs> On the other hand, you could argue that they're popular because they're not engaged in the hurly-burly of political life. And indeed, that suits both them and, and the politicians. So monarchies uh, have survived partly because of their political neutrality, but also because they have slowly adapted and modernized to the times. I was wondering, do you think you could argue that um, the move from Prince Harry and Meghan to step away could be seen in that light as just a way of the monarchy continuing to evolve in Britain? Yes, well, I, I think it's absolutely true. They have been very adaptable, all, all the monarchies. 
At the moment, we doubt whether you can entirely uh, switch on and switch off royal status. Um, there are a lot of practical difficulties in the way of that, and it may be that uh, Harry and Meghan have too closely allied its celebrity on the one hand and royal status on the other. They are not the same. Has anything like this ever been done anywhere in Europe, Bob? Well, uh, some people claim that there are vestiges of this visible elsewhere. For example, uh, the Dutch king's younger surviving brother acts as a lawyer. In, he's worked in both public and in private firms. I think he's in a private undertaking at the moment. But he's not, as it were, caught up in the daily business of monarchy. Uh, one of the Swedish princesses lives, she's married to a Brit, and she lives uh, mostly in uh, Florida. And she has some royal undertakings and so on that she looks out for, but she's predominantly re- resident in the United States. And she has three children who have now recently been dropped out of the royal family by the changes that uh, the Swedish king made only a couple of months ago, where he reduced the size of the royal family and cut off five of his grandchildren because there was concern in the Swedish parliament about the size of the Swedish royal family. This is a more persistent concern in Sweden. And this brings me to another point about the size of our royal family. Most of the countries, well, indeed, all the countries to the monarchies in uh, Europe have much smaller populations than ours. And it's quite a different thing for just four people active in a royal, in a monarchy in, in Norway, for example, with a population of five million, than it is from the monarchy here trying to modernize itself and, and giving attention to as many areas of public life as requires its attention and so on. Have you, in your research, had a look into comparing the difference between the different monarchies and how much they cost their respective taxpayers? Yes, we have had a look at that. Ours is, on the whole, the best uh, resourced. Um, the Norwegian one seems to be the more sort of per capita expensive, but I think that's because figures have included major refurbishments of uh, properties in Norway recently. That's rather distorted it. The least well-resourced are the Spaniards, by quite a margin, and uh, this reflects also the they're less popular than the generality of the other monarchies. That could be related to the fact that they're so small and they don't have the space or the time or the resource uh, to play a role in the Spanish society that it's possible for other monarchies to do in their societies. Uh, until recently, of course, we had 15 of the members of the our royal family occupied in royal duties of one kind or another. One has to remember, too, not only the size of our population relative to the other countries, but the fact that the Queen is monarch also of 15 other countries. Do you think this is a more serious crisis for the royal family than the crisis of last month, uh, the crisis of Prince Andrew and his connections to Jeffrey Epstein? The cases are related in the sense that these are members of the royal family who are not going to succeed, but who are obliged to follow the same rules and uh, suffer the same restrictions as those who are going to succeed. And this will become, I dare say, more irksome and more difficult to manage as time goes on. The plan now is for Harry and Meghan to become financially independent 
Uh, we don't know how exactly. Well, I don't. Whose plan is whose plan is that? Well, that, that's what they've said. I think. Yes, I mean they may say that, but I mean how practicable is that? Well, this is what I wanted to ask you. I mean, I know that European royals have sometimes got into trouble when they've got involved in sort of commercial deals, and I'm thinking about the Spanish king in particular, Juan Carlos, uh, helping to win the Saudi contract and then facing allegations that he took kickbacks from it. Yes, which were never proved. I mean, yes, it is a problem for them. But equally, at the beginning of his reign, of course, he's used a great deal. Uh, to uh, visit abroad and legitimize the new uh, Spanish democracy in other people's eyes. But it went sour later. There was a problem, of course, with the Dutch consort, who was allegedly taking kickbacks from one of the airplane manufacturers. So this idea of Harry and Meghan trying to earn money privately, I mean, does, does that ring alarm bells for you? Yes, well, I think it probably does. I mean, it's, it's a problem about royal status. It's not the same as celebrity. If you're a celebrity, you can monetize your activities. If you have royal status... What that does is uh, put you in a specially privileged slot in in society. And it's something which is almost impossible, I would argue, to switch on and off. But don't you feel like Harry, I mean, Harry was born into this. He he didn't choose to have this life and to have this media attention. Shouldn't he be allowed to step away from it if he wants to? I don't think there's any doubt that he could be allowed to step away from it, but he'd have to give up his royal status. You'd have to become a private citizen. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not unsympathetic to the position that uh, Harry and Meghan find themselves in, particularly somebody like Meghan coming into all this from a very different political culture. But it's difficult to see how this can be reconciled with uh, free indulgence in commercial activities. It seems stuffy. It may be antediluvian and so on. But it is the consequence of singling out a particular group of people to carry out rather significant social and political roles in your society. I find it really interesting that the countries left in Europe that still have monarchies are among the countries that consider themselves to be like among the most sophisticated democracies in the world. And yet we all do this weird thing where, as you say, we pick out a group of people and say, you're born into these jobs or you, you marry into these jobs. Do you see that as something that is entirely compatible with being a democracy in the modern world? Or is it is it something that is problematic? It is problematic. One has to point out that they do suffer these personal restrictions. They live in a gilded cage, but it's a cage. And the deal so far has been that they're given very prestigious positions. They are treated very generously financially, and they lead lives of great privilege. On the other hand, they're trading that for restrictions, which increasing numbers of people might find unreasonable to persist in. Uh, It is interesting that in the uh, jurisprudence of the European Union, uh, lawyers have been inclined to point out that the maintenance of monarchy in EU monarchies is at odds with the values of the European Union. And that is so. It is not a tidy world. But uh, the only way of dealing with this is either buckling down and making the best of it, or perhaps bouncing out of it altogether. So for my first happy ending of 2020, I've decided to turn over a new leaf and actually find a happy piece of news. Are you proud of me? I'm so proud. Thank you. So this week, there were reports that Flixcom is working. The what now? 
Flixcom is the Swedish word for flight shaming. It's a word and concept that has taken off in Sweden and in other parts of the world, whereby people pledge to give up flying whenever possible. Obviously, that's most famously been carried out recently by the aforementioned teenage climate hero Greta Thunberg. But the word was actually coined when the Swedish singer-songwriter Stefan Lindberg announced that he was giving up flying back in 2017. Well, it seems to be working. Uh, Contrary to expectations, Sweden has seen a very rare fall in air passengers over the last year. Domestic travel was down 9% between 2018 and 19. Analysts are saying that Flixcam isn't the only reason why this has happened. Other factors should be taken into account, such as the weak Swedish krona and Swedish aviation tax. But it does seem that climate concern is at least a factor, and it shows that these grassroots movements can make a difference. There we go, it's a new me, optimistic in this new decade. Ever since you became German, you've you've changed. You're a bright, smiling new person with a cynical edge. Are the Germans known for being really jolly? Is that is that why I'm <laughs> suddenly optimistic and jolly? Yeah, it's just this famous stereotype that none of us have ever heard of. I better go back to rehearsal, actually, um, and go and sing with my fellow jolly Germans. Uh, But we'll be back next week with another special episode, actually. Uh, I'm going to be taking you all to Lithuania. Stay tuned. Uh, In the meantime, you can find us all on a wealth of social media websites, including... That's a pause. That's where you come in. Including Twitter, at EuropeansPod, Facebook, if you type in the Europeans Podcast, Instagram, Europeans Podcast... And you can email us, hello at europeanspodcast.com. See you next week. See you next week. Tschüss. Get you and your German. Bye. Bye.